because of the really strong connection between financial services and the economy and how wealth gets made, I think that the financial services sector has a particular responsibility in terms of playing a proactive role in terms of trying to stop inequities or at least, you know, reverse, slow down, you know, sort of reduce the racial equity gap that there is. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I'm your host, David Reiling, and I am very excited to welcome Janine Jacobs as our guest today. Janine, it is always great to talk to you. I've looked forward to talking to you and having you on the podcast. Thanks for being on the Next Gen Banker today. Well, Dave, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for our audience, a little background on Janine. She is the Chief Executive and Senior Policy Advisor of the Community Development Bankers Association, known as the CDBA. She is also the CEO for Partners for the Common Good, a national CDFI nonprofit loan fund. And Janine has served also as a Senior Program Manager at the Department of Treasury. She was a staff member on the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and worked for Housing and Urban Affairs. So Janine, welcome. And boy, we gave uh, our audience there a little alphabet soup, uh, an acronym soup. Yeah. And so yeah. maybe let's uh, demystify those a little bit, uh, particularly for our global audience. Uh, let's talk a little bit, what's a CDFI? What does it stand for? And uh, what does it mean? Okay, uh, CDFI is a community development financial institution. And basically this is a designation that's provided by the US Department of Treasury that essentially is a uh, designation that you have you know, proven that you are a financial institution that is principally focused on serving low and moderate income communities or other types of underserved market niches. Perfect. And if I was to put a little bow on that, um, each one of those certified CDFIs has to have a mission of community development and economic development, as well as when you say authentic and walk that talk, um, I believe the threshold is 60% of their services. Is that correct? That's correct. You have to demonstrate year in and year out that at least 60% of your total lending by number and dollar amount is focused on serving uh, eligible types of target market. So uh, the way that I like to see think of, you know, CDFIs is it's a particular, you know, uh, government designation that, you know, demonstrates, you know, the type of work that you do. But CDFIs are really part of a I'll say kind of a bigger movement within the banking sector that is really focused on mission-oriented banking or values, you know, sort of oriented banking. Got it. And so when we think of uh, mission and values in that broader sense, kind of just um, expanding, let's say, the CDFI certification, that focus on, uh, so CDFIs particularly in regards to low income is mainly a, a social or low income impact. So when you think of mission, can it also be environment? Yes, mission, you know, sort of can be environmental, it can be social, you know, sort of it can be any other designation that is focused on trying to really create greater value or benefits, you know, for greater society. It isn't just about, you know, the bottom line of the bank and its business. It's really is about using, you know, sort of banks as a business model, you know, as a proponent for social change. Yeah, love it. And so uh, in that context, uh, let's go to maybe how, what type of CDFIs are there? So we know there are CDFI banks, but what other type of CDFIs exist as well? 
Okay. Uh, CDFI is a really broad designation, includes several different types of business models, I'll tell you. Um, on the regulated financial institution side, there are banks and credit unions. Um, on the unregulated side, there are loan funds and venture capital funds. And I would say those are kind of the four broad categories of CDFIs. And then there's some other business models that maybe straddles or some of those lines. But those are the four broad groups. Gotcha. Very good. And then in your role um, in regards to the Community Development Bankers Association, how do you fit in uh, to the group of CDFI banks? Uh, well, you know, sort of within each, within our, you know, the our universe of CDFIs that we just talked about, yeah. um, each of them is a really unique business model in terms of how they do their work, what sort of an operating environment they work within. And so, you know, what we are focused on are those CDFIs that are uh, organized as banks and, you know, they're domestic banks. So banks that are focused, you know, in the United States. And so what we work on is really a combination of public policy advocacy, which is really where CDBA got started. But, you know, what we also focus on is peer learning, you know, sort of amongst the banks in terms of trying to do the work they do and, you know, sort of do a better job and, you know, new ideas and so on and so forth, and really focus on trying to build their capacity to be mission-oriented institutions because, you know, sort of CDFI banks or mission-oriented banks are really sort of a small set of a much bigger, you know, sort of financial ecosystem, I guess would yeah. be the way to uh, talk about it. And so what they're trying to do, at least, you know, sort of in the United States is still fairly unique and still, you know, kind of, you know, sort of something that not all banks think about. So I think a lot of times they, you know, one of the reasons they come together here is a way to be able to, you know, be with like-minded bankers that really see banks as a proponent, sort of as a vehicle that can really promote social change, economic justice, so and so on and so forth. Whereas in the larger banking industry, that isn't necessarily very widely adopted. So it's a place for those like-minded, you know, sort of, you know, mission-oriented bankers to, you know, share what they do. So it sounds like, um, and I know this firsthand from experience, but when, when most of the time when people think of banks or bankers, they think of a very competitive and financial environment. But what you were describing is bankers coming together and, and sharing maybe best practices. And so is it a competitive environment or is it a cooperative environment? I, you know, I, I will say it's a little bit of both. You know, sort of I would think it's a peer environment where people, you know, sort of can share. And I think the thing that makes this group unique is that because the work they do is hard. You know, serving underserved communities is some of the hardest work there is in financial services. So I think they all understand that it's hard. And so, you know, sort of there's nothing. So it's helpful to talk to others that are sharing the same challenges that you are. Um, but at the same time, there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of competitiveness. Everybody wants to be number one in whatever it is they do, you know, sort of so that, but there's nothing wrong with that because maybe often that's, a, you know, something that propels people to come up with new ideas and, Exactly. you know, better ways to get the job yeah. done. So, you know, the thing that I always find um, really interesting and, and significantly different than your, maybe your traditional 
banking and banking associations is um, when I think of the competition between the various CDFI banks, um, particularly within the CDBA, is our competition is really about doing good. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's true. It's less about the, the money part. It's like, how much good can we do? How many loans to affordable housing can we do? And how can I outdo somebody else as opposed to uh, I made $3 more than, than the other bank? Um, so it's an interesting maybe uh, – uh, better for the world as opposed to uh, better for the bottom line type of a, a theory. Yeah. So um, CDFIs and their mission and their value focus. And so, boy, we, and I'll tell you from the perspective of uh, being headquartered here in Minneapolis, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, particularly in regards to civil unrest um, as a result of the injustices here done, uh, done here relative to George Floyd, it is a movement in its forefront. And so we're seeing I'll say large corporates as well as others very interested in the the CDFI bank or the mission and values bank banking movement. Your thoughts on is that is that sustainable? Are 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 the large institutions in it for the long term or is this boy I'm going to check the box for a few years until this blows over? What are your thoughts there? Mm, that's a great question. I guess what I would say is, you know, the optimist in me wants to believe Right. That, you know, sort of there is a sustained commitment. Um, the pessimist is that, you know, we've seen this before, you know, where issues right. sort of wax and wane in terms of the public's attention. But I think it's, you know, incumbent upon people that care about those issues to constantly, you know, sort of be, you know, sort of trying to get the, the bigger players that have the greater resources to continuously focus on these. I think for banking, it's a because of the really strong connection between financial services and the economy and how wealth gets made, I think that the financial services sector has a particular responsibility yeah. in terms of playing a proactive role in terms of trying to stop inequities or at least, you know, reverse, slow down, you know, sort of reduce the racial equity gap that there is. They're not the only you know, sort of factor that influences, because it's a lot of different factors that come together. But I do think because of the role of financial services and wealth building, that it does create create both a challenge as well as an opportunity for banks to always be engaged on this set of issues. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I hope that happens in this, and again, I'm with you on the optimistic view that this time is different and it'll stick and be sustainable is to be able to get across to the the larger whether it's banks or or corporates that you know your investment into a CDFI bank is not only you're going to find the social impact but you're also going to see a return on your investment it may not be you know the best return we're not a hedge fund um but the fact is, is this doing well and doing good concept i think if really demonstrated to a, a larger corporate can say, wow, I can actually make an investment in this bank. I can get the impact I want. And my deposit or my investment just keeps going and going and going. Um, if we can get that across, while it may not be the highest returning investment in terms of dollars, the combination between the social and the environmental and the dollars hopefully gets them hooked. And so I'm a little optimistic on that side, but um, that's that's my hope. Well, I, I, I'm in the same camp, you know, sort of I've, yep. I've got that same degree of optimism. But I also think that big business needs to pay attention to what consumer trends are. And consumers want to mm. see, you know, sort of want to do business 
to an increasing degree. And, you know, depending upon what age cohort you're talking to, the younger the age cohort, the more they value corporations that align with their values and being the customers of corporations that align with their values, whether it's, you know, promoting investment communities, promoting the environment or, you know, any kind of other cause. I think that it's also good business, I think, increasingly so, you know, sort of for corporations to pay a lot of attention to those, you know, very strongly held consumer values. Yes. And if I would uh, say anything about particularly that younger generation, their ability to seek out and sniff out the authenticity in it, Mm -hmm. as well as the lack of authenticity. And so that's where, boy, you do it for a couple of years and then a, a corporate pulls out someone's going to notice um, mm-hmm. or someone's going to ask that question. And so I think it's in that space as well. So as we think about this mission-driven, values-driven banking uh, movement, it sounds like there's an opportunity for a big future. Uh, are there also challenges that go along with it? Absolutely. I would say the opportunities, I think, are you know sort of abundant. But right. I think whether mm-hmm. you know sort of small financial institutions can really seize upon that opportunity is first, you know, recognizing what an opportunity it is. And, you know, sort of investing in communities, you know, I would have to say, you know, if you go backwards 20, 30, 40 years, nobody would have seen that as a viable business model. But I think today it it certainly is. It probably banks have always played this role within their communities in terms of promoting, you know, investment in neighborhoods and in, you know, sort of and in people. you know, I think the great challenges are going to be, you know, these are small institutions for the most part. So, you know, they're usually resource constrained. I also think it's going to be breaking from the traditional banking mindset that it's all about, you know, it's money, you know, bottom, there's only one bottom line. And so there being multiple bottom lines. I also think that technology is important, paying attention to technology because um, people are always going to need financial services. But I think what's happened in the last, you know, couple of decades with, you know, sort of the entrance of new kinds of technology companies and so forth, that it's giving people choices as to how they can get their financial services. I, you know, I still believe that it's the the local financial institution that's based in the community that's always going to have the upper hand in terms of being able to create that level of community change, but their business models have to change to be more efficient. So, and that's where I think Mm. technology has the potential to really help in terms of making the business model more sustainable over time. Yeah, I like it. Um, Well said. And I think that the opportunity to partner um, in this particular case with financial technology companies that have those capabilities, I think, can really propel those mission-driven banks. Um, but you're right, the challenges are size and the investment it takes to get there. Um, and really the the mindset in which to be a part and, and engage in a cooperative type of partnership to uh, bring about that new technology in, in a delivery system. So, Janine, I want to switch gears with you because during the, the long course uh, that we've known one another, I have learned more from you about legislative and government engagement than anyone else. And so, and when I'm thinking about the next generation of bankers, um, not everyone is so aware of engagement with government and, and legislation. As a matter of fact, I would really like to, in some ways, demystify a little bit 
what people see on TV versus what actually happens in reality. So let's start with this. Let's speak. Uh, can you speak maybe to the power and the importance of, of legislative engagement as it pertains to being in banking? Sure. Well, I think with any kind of, you know, kind of legislative or public policy related thing, you know, first of all, it comes down to what kind of a world do you want to live in? You know, first and foremost. And I think the second is that always recognizing that the people that you're going to talk to, they're people, period. And, you know, talk to them like you would anybody else, you know, sort of in your community. Um, When I worked on the Hill, I worked for the Senate Banking Committee, and I worked for the chairman of the committee who was a senator from Michigan. And, you know, one of the things, and I handled housing and community development, you know, sort of, um, you know, is was, you know, my primary portfolio. And whenever an issue would come up, you know, there would always be, you know, sort of this line of, you know, sort of, you know, different trade groups that would come up and say, oh, this is our position position on this issue, blah, blah, you should do this. But what I was always surprised by is who I didn't hear from. And often who I didn't hear from were people in the state. Now, one of the things that I knew is that whenever I would go to brief my senator on any issue, his his first question was always the same question. And that question was, how does this impact Michigan? Uh, you know, so, so, you know, because he understood he was there to serve the people of the state of Michigan. And so what I had to do is I had to find inside the state, you know, sort of those people in affordable housing, community development, financial services that really were the expert on the issues. So, you know, over the time that I was there, you kind of had this mm-hmm. handful of people that would always be your first phone call. Got it. And they were and, you know, what I would often be surprised by is they would be surprised that we would reach out to them. Like, I didn't think you would care what I thought right. on this issue. And so I think what the, you know, what the goal of any banker should be is they want to be one of those, you know, five or six people, you know, sort of in that congressional office that when an issue comes up on banking, you know, sort of there, you know, in your case, you know, Minnesota, where you're based, you know, sort of, you know, that the two senators offices, your Congress, you know, sort of person's office, like, well, I'm going to call the folks at Sunrise because I know, they're going to have something to say on this issue. So that should be every banker's goal is to be one of that handful, you know, sort of um, that, you know, sort of their elected representatives go to. So, but, it. it's, but you talk to them like people, period. Yeah. You know, so. So tell me this. So if I'm, uh, I'm your, your typical banker, I'm out there, I'm working. How would a, how would a common person begin to engage with, let's say a Senator Senator's office um, just to introduce themselves or to begin to develop that relationship on their path to being that that first phone call? Well, I think, you know, sort of the first thing is you call up, you need introduce yourself. I mean, that sounds so silly, but that's like so basic. And you can start with the district office, you mm-hmm. know, sort of because every yep. senator's got a district office, every congressperson's got a district office. Make yourselves known. Invite them to come to your bank. Come and see, you know, invite them to, you know, an event. Keep them on your list just like they're any kind of, kind of customer. Keep them in the loop, which that sounds so simple. Yep. It is sort of, but that's it. And then when issues come up, you give them a call and you say, hey, this is important to me. And even though, you know, sort of I, there's this very popular, you know, sort of perception that, oh, it's all about money. It's all about who gives money in politics. And that ha- that wasn't my experience. You know, sort of people knew who elected them. And those elected officials want to always have their finger on the pulse as to what's going on in their state and in their district. So to the extent that you can tell them about, you know, sort of, you know, 
this housing project that you just finished or, you know, sort of that, you know, sort of, you know, that grocery store, you know, sort of that, you know, you just did the ribbon cutting on. They want to know about that kind of stuff because they want to know what's going on. Yeah. I learned from you too. never underestimate the power of the projects in, in their district. So they want to know what's going on from their own backyard. And if they know that there's a new grocery store, there's a new affordable housing uh, complex, those are things that are very valuable to them in terms of progress. Um, And maybe getting a little credit here and there, but the fact is, is they need to know as much as you'd like to tell them. So that is correct. um, So what you're describing to me is not what I see on TV. It seems like, TV is there's two parties and they hate each other and they're yelling and screaming all the time. Is that the way it works in DC or is is something else going on in terms of engagement? Well, I would say, you know, sort of a lot of what you see on TV, I think there's, you know, there's an interest in the news media in terms of hyping some of it because that makes for good, (laughs) good TV, good TV, shall we say. Um, But I still think that your elected officials still want to know what's going on inside of their community and more so than anything else that's what they know they're there to do to represent you to represent you know the place that they were elected from so i mean that's one of those things that's not very sexy to show on tv or in the news media but i think that for elected officials that is what's important is being connected to their community yes and again another learning that i that i got from you was um no matter what your particular political persuasion may be, you should reach out to both parties with whatever the issue is, particularly if it's in your district or in, in your area or in your state. Um, because both sides want to know what's going on, like as you had mentioned, in their backyard um, in order to represent uh, their constituents well. And so um, I found in our experience of going to the Hill that things were much more civil in terms of um, here's the issue and here's where we stand. Now, they may disagree or have a different viewpoint of it, but at least there's understanding as to the issue and where the position is. And and people have said their piece and, and, um, and in a very civil way, in a constructive way, and you move on. And, and it really is as simple as calling up the district office and making an appointment, have a cup of coffee with the staff person that represents. And, and that's the beginning of a relationship that is a, what we find is a very long-term relationship with uh, a politician or, or government official. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm going to say, you know, David, what you describe, I think is probably more the norm, you know, sort of for people that interact with their congressional offices. And sometimes, you know, sort of, um, I feel like if somebody goes and has contact, if they don't get to talk to the elected member, that somehow that's not as good as talking to the staff. You know, one of the things about talking to the staff is that's who the senator listens to. You know, the senator can't be everywhere all at the same time, but they usually trust those staffers, you know, sort of, you know, sort of to be able to listen to the stories that they're hearing and, you know, sort of to be able to keep them informed. So, you know, developing relationships with those staffers are critically, critically important. And it's not second best because they really are, you know, trying to have the interest of the district and the member at heart. Very good. All right. So I got to do a quick shift. It's a very related issue, but in terms of making regulation and so uh, similar to weighing in on the, on the legislative side, it's um, the creation of new or modifying regulation. And so usually there's a 
uh, process, and you can tell me if I'm missing something here, uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, there's usually some type of comment period where banks or bankers can weigh in or community can weigh in. Um, and then some type of final, I guess, uh, rule that comes out with with a date. Now, let me ask you this. Is making regulation easy? It seems like it's kind of a one, two, three step process. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts? Didn't I miss any steps? I would say in a broad brush, you know, sort of that's correct. I think it's a little bit it it it's a you know, depending upon the complexity of the issues. But I think in the same regard, I think, you know, making the assumption that nobody cares about what I think is absolutely the wrong, you know, sort of mindset. Because, you know, having been inside of an agency, after I went to the Hill, I went to the Treasury Department and got to be part of that process too. And I think, you know, sort of in order to make sure that things get implemented the way, whether it's a regulation or a program, you know, sort of in order for it to be implemented in a way that it's actually going to help you know, sort of, and achieve the goals, whether it's in the community or in terms of, you know, regulation of the financial system, everybody's got to weigh in. And, you know, it's more important to, you know, sort of like, you know, sitting on that side of the table, the thing you hated was to get a letter that said, I hate what this regulation does, but then never providing a constructive alternative. You know, when I was sitting, you know, sort of in that seat, Mm -hmm. those people that could say, well, this doesn't work, but here's another way to go, you know, to get to the same place that's going to be more feasible and more realistic and so forth. You know, that's actually more helpful to people sitting inside the agency because they got to figure out how to implement this, you know, this thing that Congress just passed and having, you know, specific suggestions on how to make it work. I think they always welcome. Yeah, and that is a really important point because I didn't understand that in my early days in banking that, you know, by the time it gets to the regulatory agency, Congress has made a law. I mean, they have to implement. And so to say that you hate it and you don't want it is unproductive because there's going to be something. Um, You can either be part of it and shape it and mold it so it works to the best of its ability, or you can sit on the sidelines and let everybody else do it. And I can guarantee you're probably not going to get what you want by doing that. I was also amazed too on the number and the variety of different constituents that weigh in on different regulations. A lot of community groups weigh in on things. Um, you might have the real estate industry, you know, you have different industry groups uh, depending on how it impacts them. And so it was a regulation, particularly when it comes down to banking, impacts so many different industries that get money gets lent to um, that a lot of different constituents weigh in. And so it is very particular and important that that bankers weigh in specific to how it impacts them. So, Janine, uh, we're coming near the end here. And so I have to ask you the question in in your opinion, this is the next gen banker question. Um, what does the next generation of banker need to look like? What do they need to possess in in skills and abilities and mindset? How do you how do you kind of envision what that next gen banker looks like? Okay, well, I'm going to just take one of those things on the list because you could have a whole program on on every single one <laughs> of those. And I would say I think the next gen banker is sort of two different things. I guess I would like to say I think. The first is the mindset in terms of recognizing the role that banks can play in terms of improving 
you know, sort of the economic life conditions, opportunity, reducing the racial wealth gap, you know, sort of that whole basket of things is understanding what a fundamental role bankers can play in terms of shaping their community and how a bank can be an agent of change within their community. So I would say for the next generation bank, that's probably the number one sort of thing that I think they need to think about because that's where the opportunity lies, I think. The second is to be open-minded about how do you get the job done and to think creatively. And that's where, you know, so I think there are some, some things that are tried and true about banking that bankers should always do. At the same time, be willing to look at what some of the new technologies you know, technology players may be able to offer in terms of how to get the job done. Well, fantastic. Janine, thank you so much for being on the Next Gen uh, Banker podcast. It is always great to get your insights. Uh, thanks for educating us on not only CDFIs and community development banking and mission-driven uh, banking, uh, but the government and legislative side, as well as uh, the mindset around banking for good, as well as that open-mindedness uh, in terms of that canvas of banking and, and how to create new. So Janine, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Okay, thank you, David, and thanks for having me on. For this episode's musical feature, we are showcasing Wayne Everett. Wayne is a California-based singer-songwriter whose most recent album, Two Ghosts, was released in April 2020. Two Ghosts weaves together the threads of ocean haze, indie psych, delicate jangle pop, shimmering swirls of shoegaze, and languid ballads, all built on a foundation of tasteful, meticulously crafted songwriting. Here is The Smallest Earthquake by Wayne Everett. That was The Smallest Earthquake by Wayne Everett. You can find more of Wayne's music at wayneeverett.com and on Spotify and Apple Music. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, email nextgenbankerpodcast at gmail.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast, and we'll see you soon.